Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Brown Body Health and Fitness Podcast. Today I'm joined by Eric Kaplan for the fourth time on the podcast. Eric is a doctor of physical therapy and certified strength and conditioning specialist. Today we're discussing the Dunning-Kruger effect and bias in professional settings, specifically relating to how the mental side of health can impact overall performance and outcomes in both clinical and fitness settings. Before we get to this podcast, here's a quick word from one of our sponsors. Are you a health and fitness expert or studying to become a health and fitness expert, such as a chiropractor, physical therapist, physical therapy assistant, personal trainer, strength coach, and so on? You might be interested in the Performance Redefined course developed by Dr. Brian Lorish, who is a recent podcast guest. You can find the link to this course below in the description and use the coupon code BRONBODY at checkout to save 15% on your purchase. This episode is brought to you by CTM Band and CTM Recovery Products. These are the exact soft tissue recovery tools that I'm using on myself and with my patients day in and day out. CTM Band was founded by Dr. Kyle Bowling, a sports medicine practitioner who treats professional athletes, and he was a former guest on the Brawn Body Health and Fitness Podcast. You can check out his website at the link below and use the coupon code BRAWN10 to save 10% off your order from CTM Band. Eric, welcome back to the podcast. It's been so long since we've had you on, but we're excited to bring you back. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Uh, I appreciate that, you know, in your decision-making process between letting Kelly Starrett come back for a second time and letting me come back for a fourth time that you made the, a strong decision and went with me. So it's great. Appreciate it. Sure, for sure. So for people who might have, you know, forgotten the name Dr. Eric Kaplan, since it's been about a year, a little over a year at this point since we last talked, could you kind of refresh their memory a little bit about who you are and what you're doing and that sort of thing? Yeah, so I'm a freshly graduated PT now. Uh, I guess I can say that officially. My background is kind of in the fitness world and the strength and conditioning world. So uh, outside of my my undergraduate work in exercise science, I was the director of a personal training program at kind of a a bigger gym. Um, I've done some independent personal training work, sports performance, strength and conditioning. I have my CSCS for whatever that's worth. Uh, And then I kind of went back to PT school, finished PT school, and now I'm getting ready to head out and uh, start my career in that world. For sure. For sure. It sounds like you've kind of done a little bit of everything, you know, about you being the oldest guy in the class, but with age comes wisdom, right? Exactly it. Yeah. Grandpa of the class. Gotta love it. (laughs) <laughs> I should have been an award. Oh, it was an award. I did win an award for that, actually. <laughs> One of the things that I've picked up from you as far as knowledge and wisdom and insight across the years goes is this thing that we call cognitive bias. You're one of those people that seems very aware of their own errors and mistakes in thinking. For people who aren't familiar with cognitive bias or confirmation bias or all these different fancy psychological terms that go into how we think and interact with others, would you mind kind of breaking that down a little bit for us? Yeah, I think that the idea of like metacognition and thinking about thinking 
kind of reflecting on where your decisions come from, the decision-making process as a whole, I think is super important. I think it's kind of overlooked, especially, you know, we're, we're new grad PTs. We're just getting started in our careers. We have all of this information from our curriculum swirling around our heads and trying to figure out how to incorporate it into our clinical practice. And I think with all of that information, uh, it's good to kind of take a step back and think about like what matters, what maybe doesn't matter, what's relevant, what's not relevant, um, what's applicable, what's not applicable. So cognitive bias as a whole, um, and maybe this is kind of like a, a wordy definition, is basically this deviation from rational judgment that's it's influenced by basically somebody's subjective reality rather than like a pool of objective input. So you could say that, uh, for example, um, there is a, a bias called the availability bias, where it's like you're basing a lot of your decision making off of things that are in the forefront of your memory. So the, the last thing that you learn, the last cool skill uh, that you acquired, the last continuing education course, that stuff's really fresh in your mind. So the likelihood of you employing those skills and those techniques like for the next couple of weeks, maybe the next couple of months is probably a lot higher. So that's just kind of a single example of a much broader uh, concepts in cognitive biases of kind of how certain uh, elements in your environment um, can influence your decision-making process and ultimately lead to the interventions that you choose or the diagnoses that you make. Right, right. And that applies to every aspect of life, really, for that matter, not just, you know, physical therapy or strength and conditioning or the world that we are most familiar with, right? You know, if you take a business course and you learn about, say, this new marketing technique or marketing strategy for search engine optimization or social media marketing or whatever, you're probably going to take that new thing and you're going to run with it for a while. It might not be the best op or the best uh, course of action for you, for your business, but it's new, it's exciting, it sounds good. So you take it and you roll with it. Yeah, I would agree. And the I don't think that's inherently a bad thing. So that's also a point that I want to make of this, the whole idea of cognitive biases that we're always being influenced by our biases. There's no way that you can really avoid them. So acknowledging the fact that they exist and the influence they're having on your, uh, your perception of the world around you and the, and the decisions that you make, that awareness is probably the most important thing and not getting so hung up on the fact that like you're being influenced by these things. Um, but yeah, I would agree. I mean, the things that are, are fresh in your mind, the things that are exciting to you are probably going to contribute to your decision-making. And that's not always going to align with best practice. It's not always going to align with best evidence and the available research. So that gives you some indication of where bias could be problematic is when you have this, this pool of information that you just want to get out and you want to educate people on and you want to use, but maybe it doesn't apply to every situation that you want to apply it to. And you're kind of force feeding it into certain situations that it doesn't really belong. Right, right. And I think when I hear about this and think about it, to me, I initially think of people who are new in a field, new in a profession, that sort of thing, because you come fresh with all these new and exciting ideas which like you said, that can be a great thing. It's good yeah. to switch up the mainframe on occasion and it's good to change things up and offer a new perspective. But ultimately you need a way to develop a system that sure. you repeat day in and day out. So for example, if I want to uh, 
we'll, we'll go physical therapy here. If I want to evaluate a patient that walks into my clinic, I might have the same 10 questions that I start with for every patient just to get a feel for, you know, what brings them in, where they're at, what their overall health and fitness level is. And from there, I might develop more specific tailored questions to kind of tease in or rule something in, rule something out, whatever it is. But I start with the same basic things for everyone because I need to get a general feel of where this person is at. And I mean, it's the same thing with um, exercise, for example, right? You know, people go online, they see a new trendy exercise on Instagram, on TikTok or MySpace, if that's still around, whatever it is. And they instantly take that and implement that in their program, right? And their program might've been working well for them. So sometimes that change is a good thing. Switch up the mainframe, shock the system, give you a necessary change. But sometimes all you had to do was stay the course and you were going to get the results and you didn't have to go out of your way to put new things in. So I think there's certainly a art that comes about or an effect that comes about from learning or knowing when to implement change and when to stay the course and trust in the system that you've built. Oh, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, if this is hard, I think, for a, a PT student or a PT to accept, but I think the inclination towards exercise being the cure to all maladies, I think that that in and of itself is probably a bias. It's kind of hammered into our heads that exercise therapy is the thing. It's the cornerstone of our practice. So it's the thing that we should be using at all times. And in a lot of ways, I think that that's probably true. I think that it's a really potent antidote for a lot of people. Um, but there are also some people where maybe there's some more framing that has to happen or there's more that you need to know about that patient before you just start implementing high-level exercise into their treatment progression. Um, I think that the, the inclination towards exercise is generally a good thing because there is a huge amount of research and evidence to support it as a primary intervention strategy. But um, again, I think that there are certain situations where you have to pump the brakes a little bit and think about other potential options if you're looking at somebody that might not respond exceptionally well to exercise right away. Um, you, you look at pain, significant pain as being an obstacle to a lot of the things that we're trying to achieve as physical therapists. Uh, and somebody that's in a very acute pain state might not respond that well to movement and exercise right away, even if it's the thing that you as a therapist know is going to ultimately be valuable to them. Um, there is a certain level of, there's a certain point where you really have to level with the patient. And if you're, you're implementing things that are going to exacerbate their existing problem. Again, knowing that, that, that ultimately it, it should be effective. If you're exacerbating the issue in the short term, you're going to lose that patient in a lot of situations. And you kind of, in that sense, have to set your biases aside towards exercise therapy and think, okay, what, can I, what else can I do to connect with this patient? How can I bring down their pain without layering stuff that makes them more uncomfortable into the equation? Um, what can I do to ultimately get to the end result, which would be improved tolerance to exercise and, and then improved function after that? Right. And I think the next piece to that, too, is understanding that the uh, pain component to that, there, there's a spectrum to a lot of things uh, mm -hmm. that we talk about. Anything in life, it falls on a spectrum, right? Politics, economy, whatever. But pain falls on a spectrum as well. So in this case, there's a psychological component and a mechanical component. And depending on where you fall on that spectrum, 
is going to impact what you do with a patient, right? So if I fall on the mechanical spectrum and I say, look, you know, the reason this person's in pain is because of a mechanical issue, then I need to fix that mechanical issue, period. That's my number one priority. I could care less about their pain. I need to get them in a position that removes the causative factor. And maybe I look at pain as psychological, right? Maybe I say, look, you know, psychologically, this person feels like they're in pain. They have these symptoms. When in reality, what, what I see mechanically may or may not contribute to that. So I need to find a way to reduce their pain. So I'm going to do more hands-on stuff. I'm going to do more gentle things to start until that pain fades away. And then I can load them up and progress them a little bit more. And I think anytime we look at something like that, like I said, I think it falls on a spectrum. I think most of us will agree that the best answer lies somewhere in the middle, right? It's somewhere between, you know, some patients, it's, it's a mechanical thing and some patients, it's a psychological thing, but the majority it's somewhere in between. But if we aren't willing to give up and accept the fact that, you know, we have to sometimes go with the route that we're less comfortable with or adjust our own strategy or adjust our own line of thinking, I'll say, in order to best suit the needs of the person in front of us, then we become significantly less effective at what we're trying to do. Absolutely. I mean, I think that it's this constant process of matching your expectations as a clinician with the expectations of the patient that's in front of you. And I think that that's super important. I think the closer that those expectations can be, the better the outcomes will be. So some patients will come in and if they've been exercising for 30 years, they have some nagging, like chronic issues that they're trying to deal with. There's a good chance that that person is, and they're, they're a super active, you know, involved individual there's a good chance that that person is going to respond to exercise. I mean, it's just based on, again, and bring it back full circle to biases again, they're probably anchored towards this idea of exercise being a very beneficial, helpful thing. So that's their expectation. And if they walk into a sports medicine clinic where the, the clinic's bias is towards exercise and using that as the primary intervention, good chance you know, good things are going to happen in that relationship. So it's, it's expectations that fall very close to one another. Now you take the kind of more frail, older patient that um, didn't really live a, an active lifestyle and they're coming into that same clinic and you're trying to throw the same interventions at them, you know, their expectations are probably vastly different than the weekend warrior that, that wants exercise to, to manage their problem. So that, that's kind of where, you know, of course, we have biases as clinicians, but, but patients have biases too. Um, there's a bias called, called the anchoring bias that I kind of just alluded to where um, it, it kind of points towards the, the symbols and the, uh, the, the concepts and the ideas that people latch onto to drive their decision-making and to drive the way that they perceive things around them. And you could look at um, say a patient's pain as their anchor or their problem that they're coming in with as their anchor. So the way that they perceive their problem, the way that they perceive the pain that they're in and the way it's impacting their life, they're kind of anchored to that idea. And our job as 
clinicians has to be to educate them on what their problem is, what it means, what their prognosis is, what the research is suggesting. So we need, to, if their anchor is negatively affecting your process, you need to be able to, to identify that, um, to, to work to release your biases about what you think they sh should need, um, and then kind of find a common ground where expectations meet. I think it's a really big thing that's not really thought about quite enough. Right. I was just going to say, I feel like most people are unaware of the anchors that they have in life. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we talked about this at the beginning. I think the better we can be at identifying what those biases are and the way that they're impacting us, if, if we can acknowledge that, we're going to be in better shape because then you can really start to self-reflect. You can educate more efficiently and you can create a better experience for the patient that's in front of you because you're acknowledging the things that you know, you're more inclined to, you're identifying the things that they're more inclined to, and then you can have a real conversation and find some common ground. I think that's, that's so important. I think outcomes are always gonna be better if you're on the same page as your patient. Right, right, exactly. And I feel like there's probably a specific name to this whole phenomena that we've been talking about recently of when someone you know, may or may not have the ability to do what they want to do in a specific area, but they feel in their own opinion that they have it. So it's one of yeah. those things where they report they have it, but you don't see it objectively, I'll say. Yeah. I mean, there is, there is something called an overconfidence bias, which is just this general idea that you are way more in tune with what's happening and you're way more aware of the correct thing to prescribe than you probably actually are. Um, and this overconfidence bias is often depicted with something called the Dunning-Kruger effect, which I think is a super important model for people, not just in medicine, but really in any professional endeavor to understand and recognize. Um, it's, it's basically the relationship between your confidence and your actual competence. Um, and, and maybe we can, we can provide some type of link so that people can see what this looks like at, at some point. Um, but basically it looks like this. So when you're a new grad, so I'll use myself as an example. I'll throw myself under the bus real quick. I have no problem doing that. Um, this whole thing is about acknowledging biases and that's, that's what I'm happy to do. So you're coming out of school and you're super confident. You're thinking I'm the man. I know everything I am going to, you know, I'm going to go kill it. I'm going to make every patient better. This is going to be great. So uh, according to the Dunning-Kruger effect, that is the peak of Mount Stupid. So I didn't create this. This is what the Dunning-Kruger effect says. So the peak of Mount Stupid is where you're super high in competence, but you're actually realistically very low in competence. And that's a big problem because now you're making decisions that are very much influenced by your level of confidence in the fact that you know, or well, in the perceived fact that you know everything and you're ignorant to the amount that you don't know. So if you move away from Mount Stupid, you get a little bit more experience. Now you're descending down into the Valley of Despair. Also not a great place to be for the, the basic reason that now you're very low in confidence, which is never a good thing, but you're probably more competent. So unfortunately you're in this situation where maybe you're a couple of years out of school, you've realized that there's so much that you don't know that now that you're questioning your actual competence you know, with your, with your day-to-day -day practice. And that's a problem too, because if, you know, you know, a patient can smell if you're confident or not. And I think that, you know, there's that whole idea of fake it till you make it, which I don't always agree with, but, 
But a patient or a client, when they walk in the door, the way that you interact with them, the way that you're talking with them, they can smell your competence from a mile away and it's going to impact the ultimate outcome. So moving away from the valley of despair, now you're getting some more experience, you're gaining competence moving along the x-axis of this particular model. Now you're working up into the slope of enlightenment. So now you're getting more confident. You're, you're acknowledging the fact that there's a lot that you don't know, but you're gaining confidence in that acknowledgement. So you're becoming more competent and more confident at the same time. Um, at, the, at the very far end, so the, the top right of this quote unquote graph is the plateau of sustainability. So this is where you have like the master level clinician that is very high in confidence. It's very high in confidence. And that's obviously a really good um, connection to have made to be really confident and really confident. But the, and I know I'm rambling here, but I think there's, there's a driving point here that there should always be a, a delta between Mount Stupid and the, the peak of the plateau of sustainability because, because there needs to be a difference there because that is where uncertainty lives. And I think a productive level of uncertainty is probably the most important thing that you can have as a professional, as a clinician, um, whatever, that you, whatever it is that you do for a, a living, you need that level of uncertainty because that's where continued development can happen. You never want to be at a point where you're so confident that, you know, there's nothing else to learn. That's a terrible place to be. And that's kind of where you're at in, in at the peak of Mount Stupid. And you don't want to go back there. So, so you want to be slightly less confident that you know everything, but you want to have that little bit of uncertainty that drives continued uh, knowledge and education and acquisition of new information. So that's kind of where the graph ends. Um, but I think the big point is, is that kind of discrepancy and confidence from Mount Stupid to the, the top of the plateau of sustainability. I love the analogy of Mount Stupid there. Oh, I mean, exactly. you can't get much more clear than that, right? Big facts. Yeah, absolutely. And again, I think that, you know, the concept that your perception of your own skill rarely matches reality is sure. huge. Yeah. And that's something that, as you said, it kind of pertains to both ends of the spectrum, right? When you're new at something, you feel great about it. You know, I've put in my, you know, 20 hours or 25 hours, whatever it takes to get to that good point at something, you know, and from that point, you go, I feel good about this. I know a lot, that sort of thing. And maybe you've seen basic stuff and you've been good at that basic stuff, but sometimes you need to get thrown into the deep water to realize you don't actually know how to swim as good as you think you do, right? And even at that point, you take someone like you said, who's very experienced, who's knowledge, seasoned, whatever term you want to throw at it, and you put them in that same situation and they might do well to start, but they might hit a roadblock eventually too, right? So I'll give a great example of that. Um, take a patient who has a knee pathology, right? You know, it might look and smell and feel just like a meniscus injury, but it might not be a meniscus injury. And that might be something that a new grad doesn't pick up on. It might be something that a practicing clinician, whether they be a PT, AT, doctor, whatever, they might not pick up on it either. You know, like I said, it might look like a meniscus tear. They might get an MRI and the MRI is negative, but everything you do, you know, uh, Thessaly, McMurray, Apley, whatever test you want to throw at it, uh, everything looks like a meniscus tear. And you just kind of, sit there scratching your head like you know what could it be then if it's not a meniscus tear you know mri was negative x-ray is negative and then you realize that there's something else out there and it presents just like a meniscus tear 
and it's called Plica syndrome. And it's extremely rare, but it could happen. So it, it you get to that point where you start to realize that there's so much more out there, even beyond just the basic stuff. And even when you hit that expert or seasoned point, you realize that you don't know everything, right? You know, I've um, worked with a PT recently who's practiced for 32 years. That's a pretty long time. And he still refers out for certain things. Like he doesn't touch the pelvic floor, period. You know, there's certain things that they just don't touch. And even though you've had over three decades of experience, you know where your strengths are and you know that someone else might be able to provide better care for the things that you don't know as much about. And I think that's a you know, true point of, I think you said enlightenment before. Yeah, it's, it's almost like intellectual and emotional maturity. And just knowing that just my, my brother, my older brother actually gave me this piece of, I don't even know what the context of the situation was, but he was giving me advice in some situation. And his advice was basically like, whatever you do, whatever you decide, just only know that you don't know anything. <laughs> and I think that that's, it's kind of depressing, but it's so true. It's like, as soon as you can acknowledge that there's so much more to know and so much more to learn, you're never going to be satisfied with the level of information that you have swirling around your head. You're always going to want more. You're always going to be going to con ed. You're always going to be looking at the research. It's, it's again, it's that healthy level of uncertainty. that's probably way more important than actual information that you have access to at any given moment. It's, it's the desire to want more information and to want to build a more clear picture of, you know, of, you know, what a patient's problem really is, for example, um, that, that's the important thing. It's, it's that like intellectual desire. Um, so two things come stemming from what you just said. So the first thing that, that comes to mind as new grads, as you know, we're, we're freshly graduated is this bias called the sunk cost fallacy. So the sunk cost fallacy is basically this idea that we just invested a substantial amount of time and money into our education. So the likelihood that, you know, we're just going to instantly detach from, from those things and, and the information that we learned over the last several years, uh, you know, as we're coming out into practice, when we realize that maybe that's not the whole picture is a little bit lower. We just invested so much into the last several years that we're thinking we have to use the skills that we just learned. And the likelihood that you're just going to be ready to, to admit that maybe that's not the whole picture and those aren't the best available skills. I mean, it's tough to admit that, that those aren't the things that you're going to be using every day for the rest of your life. But, um, you know, they're, they're, when you have you know, you have a lot of money invested into something, you've spent a lot of time learning about something, you're going to want to use that. And the same can be said about a residency program. The same can be said about a weekend long continuing education course. So you can see how all of these biases kind of blend in with one another. It's not like they're just happening in isolation. They're all just like mixed into this big pot that leads to very specific decision-making um, that can, can or cannot be, you know, the, the best possible option. Um, the other thing that came to mind from what you just said was this idea of just continued assessment and giving yourself the opportunity to be wrong initially and then correcting what you got wrong initially to make the right judgment the next day or the next day or the next day or the next day. I mean, there's a reason that when we fill out soap notes that there's that assessment box that takes up most of your time when you're writing a daily note. Like we should be interpreting that what we're seeing every day and never being 
satisfied with what's in front of you. Because there's a good chance that whatever differential list of differential diagnoses and ultimate diagnosis that you came up with and you punched in on the ICD-10 that first day at the initial eval, it's a really good chance that that's wrong and that you're going to need to figure out how to fine tune that diagnosis so that you can then fine tune your interventions to really provide the patient with the best possible care and the best possible treatment plan. Um, that's the biggest thing. That's what we should be shooting to, uh, to shooting to achieve. Right. And I think at the end of the day, you know, no one, I, I don't care how experienced you are, how seasoned you are. I don't care if you've got the x-ray, the MRI, all the different pictures. I find it very difficult to believe people when they say that they can with 100% certainty tell you exactly what's going on with your problem, why you're feeling the way you are, that sort of thing, right? So to put that in context a little bit more, um, say someone has right shoulder pain and you tell them that their right shoulder pain is because they have a weak rotator cuff. Okay, well, there's other people I know who have a weak rotator cuff. Their shoulder doesn't hurt. Why is that? Maybe someone has lower back pain and you pull up an MRI and they have a mild disc protrusion. So a mild disc herniation. Well, I've seen people who have that or worse than that before. And, you know, they're squatting four or 500 pounds. I've seen someone who has a fully torn rotator cuff do 30 pull-ups, body weight, all the way up, all the way down. So it becomes that question of, do we really know what is going on with this person? You know, and it, it sounds terrible to put it like that, right? You know, it sounds terrible to think that we're never going to be able to nail with 100% certainty, this is what's going on and this is why. But um, I, I think that acknowledging that makes you more humble and makes you realize that you yourself have to adjust things. You mentioned it yourself. You have to be able to look in the mirror, accept what you know, accept what you don't know. And if things aren't going the way you want them to, you have to be willing to adjust. I think you brought up a great point as well, that there's this bias where you sink a lot of money or time into something and you feel that you have to use the things that you learn from that, right? So PT school, great example. PT school will tell pretty much every student, you have to ask about pain. You ask about pain description, you put it in the note, yada, yada, yada. And yet, I haven't asked a patient about pain in weeks in my last clinical affiliation, right? I think four or five weeks passed where I did, you know, two, three evals a week at minimum. And I didn't ask anyone about their pain, right? Because to me, who cares if it's a five or a seven? What difference is that going to make in how I treat them, right? Or if it's a two or a three, who cares, right? So if I start asking every patient, what's your pain? What's your pain? How do you feel with this? How do you feel with that? How do you feel there? What are they going to start to think about? They're going to start to think about the pain because that's the focus of the conversation. When in reality, you know, maybe your PT clinic is a pain management clinic and that's what you do. But if I come to a orthopedic clinic where my goal is to correct a orthopedic dysfunction, then pain is a part of that conversation, but I cannot make it the hallmark. And that's, again, just an example of taking something you get in school and thinking outside the box with it or exercise interventions. At least in our school, we never went through a TRX suspension training exercise program or progression. And yet I love to use the TRX suspension trainer because it's very difficult to use a TRX without engaging your core, right? Try doing TRX squats or try doing TRX pushups 
and try not using your core. You have to. It's just the nature of the the uh, device. So it, it's just looking outside of the walls of what you currently have and looking to kind of, I, I think, think outside the box is the best way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the whole idea of pain is a very tricky thing in our profession um, because we, we're not necessarily treating pain. I mean, that's it. Ultimately, the goal, the ultimate goal is not to reduce pain. Like you have to be able to look at pain as an obstacle to the thing that you're actually trying to treat, which is improving level of function and the way that a person interacts with their environment on a day-to-day -day basis and, uh, and being able to do that in a way that's productive and is, is relevant to that person and it meets their standards. Um, pain is often in the way of that, but it's not the thing that you're ultimately building your treatments around. You're trying to get people to move better so they can interact with their environments and they can function more effectively and efficiently. Um, and it's tough because you're right. Like we are just constantly inundating patients with questions about pain. Does this hurt? How's this feel for you? Is this comfortable? Out of 10, what does this lunge feel like to you? It's just like, you're going to talk somebody into thinking that they're in pain at some point because you're making them fixate on this idea that that should be like the barometer of their success. It's just, it's pretty bogus. I mean, it's, and it's really not getting to the point of why they're there in the first place. And if anything, it's probably creating more apprehension towards movement than they had when they came in the door, because now they think that they have to be thinking about pain every single time that they exercise. And I think it's a terrible message to send to someone that you're trying to get to live a more robust and healthy lifestyle. It's creating this, this idea that we're just like frail, fragile, breakable, like, you know, objects and not looking at our systems as like robust and, you know, and looking at us as system, systems that have the ability to improve and become stronger and become more resilient to uh, mechanical stress and, um, and all kinds of things in the environment that were previously creating a problem for these people. So yeah, I, I agree. I think that we fixate way too much on pain. We pretend like that's the thing that we're always trying to address. It's, it's an obstacle. And I think that we have to treat it as such. Um, and, and yeah, I really do think it sends the wrong message to people. It, it definitely can. And I think it's one of those things, right? Like you talked about before with the Dunning-Kruger effect, or I, I might abbreviate it DK effect here at some point, because I think that sounds really cool too. <laughs> um, it, it's one of those things that you come out of school and like we said, we're both guilty of it. We feel like we know a lot more than we actually do. And that overestimating your ability is a very dangerous place to be. If anything, it's better to underestimate your ability and where you're at. And that's not just me talking, that actually comes right from the original research from our boys Dunning and Kruger from Cornell University in 1999. They looked at, I believe it was 84 undergrad students and they did a basic American standard written English test basically before they took the test, or maybe it was after, they rated where they perceived their own grammar ability. And then they graded the test and looked at the difference between where people thought they were and where they actually were. And what they found is that those that scored the, in the lowest 10 percentile overestimated their perceived ability uh, and their test score, 
right? So they thought they did better than they did, and they thought they were better than they actually were. Whereas those that scored the highest actually underestimated their ability and underestimated their test score. They felt like they didn't do well on it. And it's one of those things that makes me laugh now because I think back to PT school, right? We all had, you know, when you're in school for anything for that matter, you all have that one friend or that one person who walks out of the test and goes, you know, I definitely failed that. I did terrible. I did awful. And then they get a hundred, right? It's just one of those things that, you know, you, you can't help but laugh at it at this point. But essentially, there's a relationship between how you feel you did and how much you feel you know and how much you actually do is what this is suggesting. Yeah, absolutely. There is. Um, so I'm trying to think it's there's a, a psychologist. His name. I'm going to butcher his name. Probably. I think it's Gerd Gigrenzer is how you pronounce it. But he came up with this um, what he calls six syndrome, S.I.C., and basically what six syndrome is, is uh, three elements of the, the average healthcare provider that contribute to poor decision-making. And a lot of it has to do with either overconfidence or underconfidence and, and not falling somewhere in the middle to some degree. So um, the S in six stands for self-defense, which is defensive medicine. It's basically this idea that you're making fear-based decisions. So um, you're, you're uncertain about what the problem in front of you is. And this, you could, you could apply this to a bunch of different healthcare providers, but you take the physician, for example, that has like seven minutes to evaluate an orthopedic case and he doesn't know what it is. He's, he's very underconfident. And so he's like, I'm just going to throw some imaging at this, or I'm going to throw an injection at this and maybe get this person out of my office because I'm just not really sure. That's the unfortunate reality is they're pressed for time. They have to make really quick snap decisions. And a lot of times their lack of confidence as a result of that leads to the poor decision-making. So what that means for us as PTs is that now you have a patient that just got imaging that probably didn't need imaging for their problem, say it's low back pain. And now they get uh, an image back that says that they have severe stenosis and prolapsing discs um, and they are just completely beat up and battered and their spine is like ready to turn into dust. Like that's a big problem because maybe their problem wasn't that big of a deal until they got that imaging. And now because of the lack of confidence of the physician in this case, so I'm kind of throwing under the bus, but it happens. Now that poor decision-making because of lack of confidence is falling on us as PTs to not only provide education that maybe the situation isn't as bad as they're perceiving it to be, the patient's perceiving it to be, but we, we kind of have to, to talk them off the edge a little bit because it's totally going to influence the way that they're not only perceiving their situation, but the way that their, uh, their, their pain perception is occurring. So it, that's a big problem. Uh, underneath that would be the I is in numeracy. It's statistical illiteracy. So it's the fact that a lot of times uh, clinicians, and I'm not going to, to, to put this on any one healthcare provider or any one profession, but generally speaking, healthcare providers are way overconfident in their ability to interpret research and interpret statistics and data. I'm not going to claim that I'm the best at it, but I like to think that I, I practice it as much as possible and I try to be pretty proficient at it. Um, but I'm not going to bore you with the studies right now, but there's a really great study that looked at uh, a whole group of OBGYN physicians 
at a conference. And essentially they were provided with statistical information um, about breast cancer. And then they were presented with a, a clinical scenario where this patient comes in that just had a positive test, a positive mammogram. And based off of the statistical information that they had, they were asked to make a clinical decision um, and, and asked to provide information on how they would educate this patient about the likelihood that they actually have cancer. And the results were staggering. I mean, really, really poor results. On the whole, the majority of, of clinicians, of physicians in this particular case did not know how to interpret that information. And they totally overestimated the likelihood that this patient would have cancer, which is a big problem because this is a situation that they're facing on a day-to-day -day basis. This is real education that they have to provide to people probably every day. And they're totally but butchering it in a lot of cases. That's a big problem. That reflects on the quality of our healthcare system. It reflects on, on healthcare costs and the health, the, the cost burden on our healthcare system. You know, that's that's a major issue. Underneath that is the conflict of interest. That's what the C stands for. And that's productivity standards versus ethical practice. This isn't as much a part of that overconfidence, underconfidence type bias, but it's basically the idea that especially as new grads, we are inundated with a huge number of patients to see uh, really early on in our careers when maybe we're not always ready for that number of patients. And because of productivity standards, we're forced into situations where we have to make a lot of quick decisions when we probably don't have the, the ultimate confidence to be able to do that effectively um, or the ability to do that effectively. And as a result, we end up making bad decisions. But it's you can't really put that on a student that's been in the field for eight months who has 20 patients a day. I mean, the likelihood of that person being able to make a lot of really good decisions and block out all of the superfluous noise that happens in a, in a clinic setting in terms of the amount of information that you're getting, that the likelihood is pretty low in that situation. That's, so that, that sick syndrome is a really good example of how you can apply overconfidence and underconfidence bias to like, you know, behaviors that are very typical of a healthcare provider. You brought up a variety of good points there and kind of going in order here. The first one, you brought up the mindset approach, I'll say, or the mindset impact on someone, right? So mm -hmm. someone mentally believing they have something that they don't actually can cause a lot of problems, right? So take, for example, there's different medical cases that I've seen, read about, heard from from doctors of people, they mentally believed that they were blind. Mm -hmm. And next thing you know, they can't see. Now, all their nerves, everything is intact you know, structurally, everything looks good, but they can't see. So there's something powerful about the mind in that it can really, like, in a way, convince your body that something is wrong when it's not. And that's, yeah. again, from going back to pain, that's the basis for the neurological approach of pain, right? It starts in the head. Well, yeah. with that said, that's also a problem as we've been discussing for clinicians and practitioners, because if you mentally have a disconnect between what you're physically capable of, right? You mentally feel I can do anything, I can do everything, but physically you have a limitation and that causes problems. Sure. Same thing with exercise. I mentally think, you know what? I can go in the gym and I can bench 400 pounds without a spotter. Physically, we know that I can't do that. And if I did that, I would run into some problems or it'd be a pretty embarrassing situation, right? So recognizing that your mental needs to sync with your physical 
And you have to choose what you say carefully in order to not provoke something mentally for someone. And that's an art. No yep. one is perfect at it. It takes a lot of time and skill and practice because different people have different triggers, right? I might say dig for an athlete when I need to say drive. And mm. that means two different things for them, right? This goes back to a, a podcast that we had recently with Dr. Frank Dick, who discussed this in detail in the realm of coaching. I think it was flawless in the way that he presented it. He's someone who's worked with Olympians. He's someone who's, you know, friends with some of the best coaches to ever walk the planet. And yet they sometimes make mistakes in how they say things or how they put their words uh, about, how they put their thoughts into words. And that has profound impacts on what they see or what the physical result is, whether that be in performance or in strength or whatever. The second piece is recognizing that this concept of the Dunning-Kruger effect, it applies to a lot more than just healthcare. It applies to medicine. Uh, there's actually been some uh, studies on the Dunning-Kruger effect in medical students before, which is uh, interesting in itself, but it applies to a lot of other areas of life. For example, politics. There was a 2013 study that basically had people identify where they sit politically, but then rate their knowledge of social policies. And that study showed that people express confidence in their own political expertise, and yet their explanations of certain policies, it, it suggested that they lacked the knowledge and understanding that they thought they did about that. And I find that interesting because we're currently living in a world that is so politically divided that it, in actuality, people don't actually seem to know what they think they know about it. Um, the same is true with uh, something like uh, driving for that matter. Um, so driving, there's a 2013 study that showed um, about 700 of the 900 drivers they looked at rated themselves as above average. And they didn't uh, necessarily identify what criteria makes a good driver. So it's one of those things that, you know, everyone thought they were a good driver. And yet you look at the statistics on automobile accidents and 700 out of 900 people or whatever that breaks down to percentage wise, 70 some percent people are not above average drivers, right? That's just statistically impossible or vaccinations, right? Um, there, was a re there was a study a few years ago where 1300 adults asked questions about the uh, MMR vaccine, and one third of the adults who answered uh, said that they knew more than the doctors and the scientists about the vaccine. And it's just one of those things where people take this belief that they know everything and they apply it to every area of their life, not just physical therapy, but everything. And I don't care what you do, what your background is, you need to be aware of your own biases and you need to be aware of what you know and what you don't know. Uh, and you have to be honest with yourself about those things because say you are in physical therapy and you wanna open up your own practice one day. Well, if you're not honest about what you don't know about business and marketing, then your practice is gonna fail even if you are the best physical therapist, right? And maybe on the flip side, maybe you're a great business entrepreneurial type person but you don't know a dang about the stuff that you're going to be selling, right? Maybe you're starting to sell a new 
a healthcare product or something like that, and you don't know anything about it. Well, if you don't know anything about it, good luck trying to sell that to someone, right? So you have to be aware of what you know, what you don't know, and be willing to accept that there are other people out there who know more about something than you, and you can connect with them. You can network with them, right? There's room at the table for everyone to succeed. You don't have to sit at the table by yourself in life. So find ways to connect with others, network with them, and leverage everyone's strengths instead yeah. of just sitting there and you know living with your own strengths and your own weaknesses. Play into your own strengths and use your weaknesses to play into the strengths of others. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, it's you made a good point about the fact that we just would like to think that we understand the mechanics of the way the world works around us. <laughs> it just couldn't be farther from the truth. I mean, you ask me if I know how to use a computer and I say, absolutely. But if I really knew how to use a computer, I'd probably know how the inside of a computer works too. And I don't, I don't know the first thing about a microprocessor and a motherboard. I don't know anything about those things, but yet I sit here on a computer and I can use it very superficially without a problem. Um, but as a, a, as a machine and as a, a functional system, I have no idea how this thing works. So, I mean, you could take that and extrapolate it out to any number of situations to illustrate the point, but it really, you know, it, it gets back to that overconfidence bias. We'd like to think that we know everything because that makes us feel good. It makes us feel comfortable in our environment, but, and, and it's not comfortable to admit the fact that you don't. So, right. And, um, and to so, your point, break down criteria, right? So yeah. in your example, you play guitar. And you're a much better guitar player than I am. So you could tell someone, yeah, I play guitar or I'm good at playing guitar. But do you play guitar as good as Jimi Hendrix? You know what I mean? Like just taking a specific example and then breaking down the criteria within it. All of a sudden, the whole picture changes. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm very when it comes to playing guitar, I am deep in the valley <laughs> of despair. Like I know <laughs> I know where I stand on the Dunning-Kruger effect. I think I'm competent at some things, but I'm very, I'm abundantly aware of the number of guitar players that are much better than me. So yeah, it's, I mean, but yeah, the, yeah, exactly. It's just another example of this, this overconfidence. Thing. You know, as we talk about this, I realized that it probably sounds somewhat pessimistic for people, right? You know, I actually don't know much as much as I thought I did. So as far as what people should do or how people can overcome this effect of over underestimating their own abilities. Do you have any recommendations or advice to people? I mean, first recommendation would be to not look at it as a negative. I think that understanding this is the ultimate level of optimism. I don't want to get to a point where I feel like I have figured everything out about anything. To me, that's super uncomfortable because there's, there's no growth in that. I mean, that, that the point at which you feel like you know everything is just a point of stagnance. It's sterile. It's there's there's no room for development in that. So I mean, I think that the first thing that you should do is look at it that way. Is the level of uncertainty that you have, although it can feel uncomfortable, is the ultimate source of growth in anything that you're doing. Whether it's whether it's being a PT, whether it's cooking, playing guitar, just existing in the world. The, the level of uncertainty that you have is always going to drive scientific curiosity. It's always going to drive new learning and experiencing new things. So 
um, yeah, don't be satisfied with just being stagnant. Don't be satisfied with that, this idea that you know all there is to know about a topic or a skill or a thing because there's a very good chance. Actually, there's absolute certainty in the fact that you don't know anything. So um, yeah, frame that as a good thing. Frame it as a source of development, not as a, a source of pessimism. Right. No matter what obstacle gets put in your path, you can always find a way to look at it from a positive light, right? Not all yeah. obstacles go in your way in order to completely wreck your day, right? Some right. obstacles are there for a reason. They might redirect you to a better path or you might be able to bust through it and feel stronger on the other side of it, whatever it is. And I think it's important too that you need to, as we've talked about extensively so far, take time to reflect on things and use whatever you don't know as the path forward, right? Use that obstacle of uncertainty and not knowing as your direction forward. Like, I don't know this, but I want to. And you're gonna get there by challenging your own beliefs and challenging your own reasoning, right? You know, are you satisfied with your own rationale for things? Are you satisfied with how you feel about something? And push yourself, play devil's advocate with yourself a little bit different times. Like, am I really sure this is the problem? Am I really sure this is what's going on? And if you're not, then there's your growth point, right? You can focus in on that. And if you're someone who is struggling on where to go to, it never hurts to seek out feedback from the right person, right? So for example, we mentioned before about my friend who's been practicing for over 30 years and he doesn't touch anything pelvic. Well, you know, for that, for that same reason, say I have someone that I'm treating who's got, say, a um, neurological condition that I'm not familiar with. I haven't worked with it before. I might call someone up who I know has worked with a neurological, a patient with a neurological condition like that. And I might say, hey, here's what I'm planning on doing. Help me out here, right? Get that feedback on the stuff that you don't know. And that can kind of give you that direction forward that you might not have, right? That can kind of act as the start of your compass and you will end up figuring out the rest of the direction from there. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, one more just like small piece of advice, I guess you could say, or just another point to make is, uh, I guess I could explain it with another bias, um, is a confirmation bias. I mean, we, everybody kind of intuitively knows what a confirmation bias is. It's like you want to surround yourself with like-minded people and people have the same opinions as you. Um, you know, you brought up the example of politics. I think it's rampant in politics. I think it's the <laughs> primary issue in politics is that, you know, whether you like watching Fox News or you like watching CBS or you like watching CNN, I don't care what it is. They make money on the fact that you're comfortable only hearing opinions that satisfy the opinion that you want to hear. And that's a problem that puts you in an echo chamber and you're never going to learn anything. That is peak Mount Stupid. You are at a position where you are, you think that you have found the Mecca for good information and you're just going to hang out there and you're just going to exist there and be satisfied with that spot. Um, and, and that's part of the problem. I mean, I've always said that if you're in a, if you're in an argument with somebody and it's a, a heated debate and you can't seem to come to terms with, with a, a common, uh, kind of a common agreement, the first thing that you should be thinking about doing is explaining the other person's argument to that person and making sure that you know exactly what they're saying. Because as soon as you do that, there's a good chance that you're going to reveal some inconsistency in what they're saying um, and, and, what they're, and what you're perceiving 
from what they're saying. So um, yeah, that the confirmation bias, I think is a huge problem. Get outside of your comfort zone, stop listening to people that agree with you. If you're super into pain science, go listen to someone that's all about biomechanics. If you're super into biomechanics, go listen to somebody that's all about pain science and figure out how to find the average of those two things. Because I think the, the faster you can do that, the, the more competent that you'll be because it's just gonna make you more open-minded. Exactly. Comfort zones are danger zones. And if you don't believe me and you don't like any of the examples we just gave you, then go try exercising and just do what you're comfortable with and never push yourself, never increase the weight or the repetitions. Just do what feels good to you and see what happens after weeks, months, years go by. See if it gets you anywhere. Because I'm willing to bet that staying in that comfort zone of, you know, I don't want to do too much or I don't want to overwork or overtrain or this, that, or the other thing. I'm willing to bet that won't get you where you want to be, you know? Yeah. Stress equals positive change. And if there's one thing I've learned about physical therapy so far, that is just about the most important thing that you can learn is is figure out how to create positive change through stress that maybe isn't super comfortable to someone uh, from the outset. But I also think that applies to a lot of other things. It's if you're in your comfort zone, you're not being appropriately stressed. And if you're only spending time outside your comfort zone and you're just exposing yourself to stress, maybe that's a problem. Maybe you need to dial things back. But uh, figuring out how much stress you need to to create some type of positive change is probably the most important thing to take away. For sure. For sure. Eric, this has been a great episode. Do you have any other closing thoughts or closing remarks that you want to share with people? Uh, yeah. So one thing I, I would recommend in terms of like stuff that you can look at, maybe if you're doing a show notes thing, I gave an in-service presentation on this topic that I think can um, can kind of break things down in a little bit more detail that, that I can share. Um, there's also some really good books out there on this topic. There's a book called Daniel Kahneman called Thinking Fast and Slow that will totally revolutionize your, your, the way that you perceive this idea of bias and the idea of heuristics, like mental shortcuts, things like that. So I would definitely recommend checking that out as well. For sure. For sure. And Eric, for people who want to find out more about you or follow you or engage with you or whatever it might be, where can people find you? Uh, I have zero social media presence whatsoever outside of my personal social media pages. But if you want to direct message me on Instagram, Eric Scott Kaplan, Eric with a K, Kaplan with a C, you can totally do that. And that would be pretty cool. So yeah, slide into me. your DMs. Huh? Slide into my DMs. Go for it. Uh, I'll, I'm, I'm sure Jenna will appreciate that. <laughs> 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 We're just kidding. But Eric, this has been a great episode. Good to see you again. And Thanks for coming back on the podcast. Oh, yeah. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Brawn Body Health and Fitness Podcast. If you like this episode, please make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform and share this episode with a friend who you think would enjoy hearing it. Additionally, if you want to help support this podcast and keep future episodes going, please check out our links below where you can support us directly or through engaging in any of our affiliate marketing links. Last, please make sure you check us out on social media at Braun Body and leave a five-star review, especially if you're listening on iTunes or Spotify.